you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn with me to John chapter 12. We'll be continuing our study there. Uh, James Garfield was the 20th president uh, of the United States. He was inaugurated on March 4th, 1881. Uh, and on July 2nd of that same year, uh, he uh, was shot by uh, a, a man who was very disappointed with him. Uh, this gentleman that, that shot President Garfield uh, somehow expected, even though he had never spoken with Garfield, he expected to be appointed to some type of a political uh, office. Uh, and because uh, in the, the three months that uh, Garfield was in office, he hadn't yet been appointed to that position, uh, he uh, got upset and he, he shot Garfield twice, once uh, in the arm and another time uh, in uh, the back and uh, the, the bullet wound uh, that, I guess, entered in the back, kind of the bullet went down into his abdomen. And uh, ultimately, James Garfield uh, died uh, on September 19th, 1881. Uh, so uh, he was president for all of six months and, and two and a half months. He was, uh, or, uh, he was uh, incapacitated, basically, uh, and on uh, bed rest and not able to, to walk and, and battling for his life. Uh, following the, the gunshot wound. And what was amazing is that it, it was not actually the, the gunshot wound that, that killed President Garfield. Uh, the, uh, the team of doctors and uh, physicians that, that cared for him during those two and a half months actually did more uh, to kill President Garfield than the actual bullet wound. There was a, a series of medical uh, blunders uh, which involved not feeding him adequately, uh, not properly utilizing uh, technology that would help them to, to find the bullet. Alexander Graham Bell actually had was was testing a metal detector at that time that would have uh, been successful uh, in finding and locating uh, where the, the bullet was inside President Garfield. But the, the medical team didn't uh, utilize that technology properly. Uh, but I think worst of all, they, they they stuck unwashed fingers and instruments into his wound that created an infection within him. Uh, and uh, several modern biographers uh, have argued that if uh, somebody were to suffer a similar wound uh, today, uh, they would probably be out of the hospital within two or three days. Uh, but, but at that point in time, uh, President Garfield was uh, battling for his life for close to three months before finally dying. Uh, it, is, it is a heartbreaking example uh, of misunderstanding a situation. Right, uh, of thinking that uh, one thing needs to be done when exactly the opposite needs to be done. And President Garfield might have easily survived if he was given proper nourishment, rest, and the wound had been cleaned. But again, those team of physicians, believing that they knew what was best, incorrectly, uh, did more to, uh, to bring about his death than to, to heal him. Uh, and this is a, a common theme uh, for uh, all of us, for all of us as uh, human beings, uh, we tend to uh, to misunderstand circumstances. Uh, we tend to uh, think uh, one thing when another is true. Uh, we, we reject the reality of certain situations. Uh, and it, as we see in the case of President Garfield, if we if we misunderstand the significance of a situation. Uh, or if we uh, choose to, to pursue uh, the, the wrong remedy, 
Uh, it can have dire consequences. Uh, if we trust in the wrong solution to a problem that we face, it's not going to, to help things. It's going to complicate uh, and exasperate things. And as we uh, continue our study in John's Gospel this morning, uh, what we are going to, to see is a, a people uh, who are misunderstanding a situation. Uh, they, they have come to a certain conclusion about what they need, uh, but they are desperately wrong in their own assessment. Uh, as we come to, to John chapter 12, we are coming to uh, the final week in Jesus' life. Uh, as we uh, two, two weeks ago, we, we studied uh, verses 1 through 11 in chapter 12, and, and we saw uh, Jesus w- was there with uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and we saw Mary anoint the feet of Jesus, uh, and that, that took place at a, at a banquet on a, a Saturday night after the Sabbath. Uh, and uh, now, what we're going to, to study this morning uh, ha- takes place on the next day, what is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. And uh, later on in this final week of Jesus' life, on that, that Thursday night, Jesus will, will celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. Uh, later on that night, he will be uh, betrayed by one of those disciples, Judas Iscariot. Uh, he'll be arrested uh, and taken, uh, and he'll be illegally tried at night by the Jewish authorities. Uh, and then he'll be uh, taken over to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, and, and the Roman governor is going to say, well, he's innocent. But the, the governor is still going to agree and capitulate to the Jewish leadership, uh, and he's going to, to agree to allow Jesus to be put to death. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday and buried in an empty tomb that same day. And on Sunday, he's going to rise from the dead. That tomb is going to be found empty. That's what what we are heading into in the Gospel of John in this final week of Jesus. But what we're going to see this morning is dramatically different uh, from Jesus being put to death uh, by the Jewish leaders and by the crowd of people. In our text this morning, what we're going to see is Jesus actually being uh, hailed as a conquering hero. Now, we're going to see him being greeted by a multitude uh, as if uh, as he travels from Bethany into Jerusalem. Uh, and these people are going to, to welcome Jesus into the city as if he is a conquering king, as if he has uh, fought a, a big battle for the nation. He's coming in uh, and being welcomed into the city. And this is one of only just a a few events that are recorded in all four of the Gospels. Uh, And so that that shows us the significance of what is going to to take place in our passage this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, all the way through verse 19. If you uh, would read along uh, with me. It says, On the, the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it. As it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had not they had done these things to him. 
So the crowd who was with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness about him. For this reason also, the crowd went and met him because they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Pause and pray. Father, we come before you, thanking you, praising you, acknowledging that uh, your word is faithful and true. Every word that we just read uh, is inspired by you, and we pray that you would help us now to understand it, to grasp uh, all of its meaning, all of its application, all of its depth, and help us to, uh, to take your word uh, and to implant it deep within our hearts. And may your word, even as we just sung, may it shape and fashion us into the image of your son, not for our glory, but for yours. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. As we as we study this passage, what we're going to to see is we're going to be able to make four discoveries uh, as Jesus is is welcomed into Jerusalem here, what is famously known uh, as the triumphal entry. Uh, As he is welcomed into Jerusalem as the the king and Messiah of Israel, uh, there's going to be four discoveries that we're going to be able to make uh, that are going to uh, realign our own hearts concerning who Jesus is, uh, what he came to do, uh, and what you and I need most from him. That's what we're going to to see here, what we're going to to discover in this text. Uh, and, And the first discovery that we make is found in verses 12 and 13. Uh, And we're going to discover the king the people want. If you look with me again at those verses, it says, On the next day, the the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, back at the very beginning of this chapter, uh, in verse 1, we are told that uh, it was just a a matter of days, six days, uh, uh, before the the Passover of the Jews. uh, And Jesus was staying in the village of Bethany, which is about two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, And it's probably a safe bet to assume that he was staying uh, with Lazarus and his family. Since just at the end of John chapter 11, uh, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, and uh, Jesus is, is on his way into the city of uh, Jerusalem leading up to the, the Passover feast, which is just a couple days away. Uh, and during the annual feast, the, the city of Jerusalem would, would swell in population as uh, pilgrims from around uh, the, the land of Israel and around the Mediterranean would come to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the feast. And uh, some scholars would say that the, the original population of Jerusalem at this point in time was about 50,000 people, which, uh, and then they, they would estimate that during the, the feast times it might balloon up to 150,000 people. And that's on the, on the lower side. Other scholars say uh, that the population of Jerusalem was about 100,000, and it might balloon up to a million people uh, during the feast times. And still, uh, the historian Josephus, uh, who himself was a Jew, describes one Passover just before the Jewish war of A.D. 66 through 70, uh, when 2.7 million people took part uh, in the feast in Jerusalem. 
And that wasn't counting the, the non-Jews uh, who were there. Uh, and so you can, you can imagine uh, what this would do uh, in terms of uh, setting the whole city on edge. Now, and what I mean by that is when, uh, when there's more people, when, when you're in a crowded city, uh, what does your energy level feel like? Right? Uh, the tensions rise. Think about when you're on the freeway and there's lots of cars, how do you feel on the inside? The stress level rises. Well, the same thing uh, when a city of uh, 100,000 balloons to 1 million people for a couple of weeks, uh, things get a little bit tense. Uh, in addition to that, uh, if there was going to be a Jewish uprising against uh, the uh, Roman uh, overlords, uh, the people who are in control, when would it likely take place? During this time where there's a million Jews uh, there in the city. So uh, you can imagine that, that the tensions are very, very high uh, during this feast, especially when you throw in uh, the expectation of what the crowd concerning Jesus. So when, when this great crowd of Jewish pilgrims hears that Jesus is on his way into the city from Jerusalem, coming in from the east, uh, they, they went out to greet him along the way. And it says that they, uh, they grabbed palm branches uh, and took them uh, with them. And these would have been easy to obtain. Uh, all throughout that area, there, there's palm trees, and they're still there uh, even today. Uh, and palm branches are significant because they were symbolic of victory. All right, well, if you wanted to, to celebrate and demonstrate that somebody was victorious, you took palm branches. But uh, in addition to just symbolizing victory, they also began to symbolize uh, Israel as a nation. Uh, and this goes back to the, the Maccabean revolt uh, in the, the second century B.C. Uh, when palm branches were, were prominent in the rededication of the temple in 164 B.C. Uh, and then also when Judas Maccabeus uh, 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 pushed out uh, the, the Syrian forces of, from Jerusalem in 141 B.C., uh, they welcomed uh, Judas Maccabeus into the city with palm branches, that, again, as this conquering hero. Uh, and they had expected him to be the Messiah, but he didn't... Uh, deliver and bring about all of the messianic promises uh, and so later on uh, palm branches appear as national symbols of, of the nation of uh, israel when they uh, rebelled against rome later on in the, in the first century and then also in the second century uh, and they were we started to to make their own coins uh, guess what was on those coins palm branches uh, and uh, the Romans, who, who came in and destroyed Israel in both of those rebellions, uh, as, a, as a shot against the Jews, uh, when, when the Romans began to, to mint coins in the, that area, guess what they put on uh, the Roman coins? Uh, palm branches. Uh, and, and so the, these palm branches uh, were a symbol of victory, and they were a, a symbol of uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, and in, in addition to, to waving uh, these palm branches, what we see here, uh, as John describes it, is this great crowd of people uh, was repeatedly crying out uh, a particular uh, portion of uh, the psalm that we read this morning. Uh, they, they cried out uh, the very first line of Psalm 118, verse 25, Hosanna. Uh, which is really just a, a Hebrew word that they've brought over into uh, the Greek. And it li li literally means uh, bring salvation now. Uh, so they're, they're uh, and they're quoting the, the very next uh, verse uh, in Psalm 118, verse 26, which begins, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Now, and so what, what you have here is this, this great expectation and the, the crowd uh, acknowledging and wanting Jesus to be uh, the messianic king. And indeed, he is the messianic king, uh, but, but they are expecting him to come uh, and bring uh, victory over uh, the Romans. Uh, and uh, if you've ever seen uh, footage from uh, the, the victory parades of, of World War II, so after victory in, in uh, Europe uh, in, uh, I believe, May 1945, and then victory uh, in Japan uh, in August of uh, 1945, uh, what was taking place in the streets of American cities, right? You had uh, everybody uh, rejoicing, the m- members of the, the armed services uh, there uh, celebrating, walking through the streets. And what's every little boy waving, right? An, an American flag. Uh, that's the type of celebration that this is. This is in, in communicating a great expectation uh, that Jesus is going to be a conquering hero. He's going to, to come into uh, the city uh, and he's going to defeat the Romans and he's going to establish an independent uh, nation uh, for the people of Israel. Uh, and uh, what we see here uh, is the kind of king that the people of Israel wanted at that point in time. They wanted a king to lead them in military victory. They wanted an independent nation. They wanted somebody to lead them politically. This uh, reminds us of the scene back in John chapter 6. After Jesus had uh, fed the, the, the 5,000, which was actually probably more along the lines of, of 20,000 people because it was just 5,000 men who were counted. But Jesus feeds 20,000 people and the people are ready at that point in time to take him and make him king. This is what uh, John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15 say. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Jesus, Jesus never gave in to what the people wanted. They wanted him to be the conquering hero. And Jesus never had that in mind. And the people of Israel sought to conform Jesus to fit their strongest desires. Okay? They wanted independence from Rome. And so they tried to conform and shape Jesus to be a Messiah, a king, a God of their own invention. Jesus, we want you to be this way. Do these things for us. In our own time and culture, we, we value personal autonomy. And we try and shape Jesus to, to fit the, our own desires. But we want Jesus to be like a, uh, a genie for us. We want him to, to be there when we really need him. But unless we need him, what do we want him to do? Stay in the bottle. Just don't, don't mess with my life. That's our desire. We want our autonomy and our independence. But what we have to learn here is that we cannot conform uh, Jesus to, to be uh, the king that we want him to be. We can't conform God to be the, the God that we want. And that's, that's so often what you encounter in uh, our world and culture today. You talk to people about the, the God of the Bible, who he is, and many people will object to who the God of the Bible is. They'll say, well, I, I don't want to believe in a God like that. Uh, but that's the, the, the danger that we are prone to, to walk into. We are in danger of seeking to make a God that, that we want, but not the God that we need. 
And Jesus resists every human attempt to conform him. He, uh, he is who he is. And he calls us to behold him as God, to submit to him as Lord, to worship him as holy, to serve him faithfully, to love him wholeheartedly, and to abide in him completely. Now this is what the first discovery that we make. We, we discover uh, the type of king that the people want. Uh, But secondly, verses 14 and 15, we discover the king that the people actually need. If you look with me at those verses. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So in in response to this this nationalistic uh, fervor, uh, Jesus... uh, he does something very profound, and some commentators call this uh, an, an acted-out parable. Uh, because uh, what he's going to, to do demonstrates uh, what his intentions are as he comes into the city of Jerusalem. Uh, as, as the city is on the brink of revolution, like if Jesus says, let's revolt against the Romans, they are ready to go. But Jesus doesn't seize this opportunity for revolution. John just emphasizes that he he finds a donkey. And if you were to to look at the other uh, gospel accounts of this, you'll you'll see a lot more uh, detail about uh, how Jesus and his disciples obtained this donkey and when he started to ride in on the donkey and all of these things. But, But John just emphasizes Jesus finds a donkey and he sits upon it. And he rides into the city. In the middle of this celebration parade, uh, he comes in riding on uh, this young colt of a donkey. And and this would have immediately dampened the mood, right? Because if you are uh, expecting a triumphant uh, military leader, uh, what are you going to want him to ride in on? Yeah, not not a little young donkey. It's probably struggling to, to stay afloat, so to speak. Uh, you, you are going to want your, uh, your king, your conquering hero, to be riding in on uh, a, a great white war horse. That, that's what you are going to, to expect and see. Now, indeed, in Revelation 19, we see that description of Jesus at his second coming. Now, it says this, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. See, that is the true triumphal entry of Jesus. And that is the king that the Israelites want at this point in time. But that is not the king that they need at this point in time. Jesus comes to them riding on a donkey. Uh, because when someone rides on a donkey, they are communicating a, a message without saying it. Now, what we see in someone who's riding a donkey uh, is coming in peace. Whoever's riding it is pursuing peace. 
So Jesus is coming into Jerusalem with humility, with with, uh, lowliness, with, with gentleness. And his aim is not conquest. His aim is submission. And Jesus is explicitly rejecting the war horse, and he's coming in pursuit of peace. And the Apostle John quotes Zechariah 9.9 to show uh, that this is what was predicted of uh, the Messianic King. Zechariah 9.9 is not quoted in full here uh, in John's uh, passage, but this is what it says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And John abbreviates the verse, and he actually changes the the beginning of it. If you catch uh, in in the Old Testament, Zechariah 9.9 begins with, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. But John quotes it as, Fear not. O daughter of Zion. And it's not clear why he does this. He could be kind of splicing in and combining two Old Testament passages into one. Uh, And there's debate among uh, pastors and and scholars about uh, what Old Testament passage he's referring to. It could be Zephaniah 3, verses 16 and 17, which say, In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst. A victorious warrior, he will exult over you with joy, and he will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. But but even the greater context of Zechariah 9 uh, that is being uh, quoted and alluded to here uh, by John the Apostle uh, is, is holding up the Messianic King as the one who's going to bring peace to the nations. Now, Zechariah 9.10 says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow uh, of war will be cut off uh, and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem as uh, the Messiah, uh, but he's a different type of Messiah than the people wanted. Now, he is not coming as the conqueror. He is coming uh, with humility and with gentleness. He is coming uh, to pursue peace uh, with the people who have rebelled against him. Uh, in uh, Luke's uh, account of uh, the triumphal entry, at the very end of it, uh, you have Jesus going in and then he comes out later and he, he's overlooking uh, the, the city of Jerusalem in Luke 19. And he says, if only you knew the things that would, that would bring peace. Uh, but they, they don't have an understanding of what will bring, bring peace. And what they have done is uh, in their, ultimately in welcoming Jesus in this way and then rejecting him, that they bring condemnation and judgment upon themselves. And what the, the people of Israel don't need is salvation from Rome. They need salvation from sin and its consequences. That is the, the larger issue at hand. Uh, they don't need revolution against human rulers they need reconciliation with their divine creator uh, as they are uh, at war against the people of israel have wrongly identified what they need most from jesus now but jesus as a good and faithful king he he knows what they need most Uh, martin lloyd jones uh, who was a, a preacher in London during the, the middle of the 20th century. Uh, before he entered into uh, the ministry, he was a, a very prominent uh, 
doctor in uh, the United Kingdom, one of the most prominent doctors uh, within uh, the nation. And while he was a, a doctor, what continued to break his heart is people would come to him for medical, physical concerns, uh, and he, he began to, to see and realize so much of the things that he's dealing with are actually spiritual matters. Uh, and so that led him to say, I can't actually deal with what needs to be dealt with. So he, he left his medical practice and he became a, a minister. Uh, and, and he taught faithfully, and uh, years into his ministry... Uh, He said this, when I was a doctor, I never let my patients write the prescriptions. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing right here. He's coming into the city and the people want revolution. They they want freedom from Rome. They want Jesus to to come and be their, uh, their political leader. But Jesus, knowing the moment... Understanding what the people need most is not, uh, he's not the, the king that the people want, but he is the king that the people need. And we need to take this to heart, that, that a good and faithful, loving and wise king will always give to his people what they need most. Not what we want most, but what we need in His sovereignty, in His love, in His wisdom, He will give us uh, what He sees is our greatest need. And sometimes our greatest need is to be encouraged. And He'll bring a word of encouragement. Sometimes our greatest need is instruction and correction. Sometimes our greatest need is discipline. Sometimes our greatest need is a little bit of humility that will come through suffering and trials. And a good and faithful king will allow those to come into the life of his people. And we have to remember most that the greatest need of humanity is forgiveness and reconciliation with the God that we have rejected and rebelled against. That, that is our greatest need in this life. Your sin has separated you from a holy God who has created you, who has given you life and breath and everything. And our greatest need is to be brought back into fellowship, into harmony with Him. And the life and blood of this humble King, Jesus, who comes into the city riding on a donkey, not a war horse, He's going to be the one who's willing to give His life to save His people, to give them what they truly need. And his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the dead uh, is going to be exactly what the people need, not uh, revolution against Rome. What we see here uh, is that this faithful and wise king who, who is going to give to his people what they need most, not what they want most, he's going to interact with you and I in the exact same way. But when we cry out to God, praying to him for something to take place, Deliverance from circumstances, deliverance from hardship, uh, answers and direction, wisdom in life. Jesus is going to give to us what we need most in that moment because he is a good and faithful and wise king. So we must look to him in faith. He is the king that you need most. He is the sacrifice, the offering uh, that you need uh, given on your behalf. These are the the discoveries that we make here in the triumphal entry. We have discovered uh, the king that the people want, but we've also seen the king that the people actually need. 
Then in verse 16, we we see uh, the king that everyone misunderstood. Verse 16 says, These things his disciples did not understand at the first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. And this is a uh, really a, a parenthetical statement by the Apostle John. Uh, when all of this w- was taking place, uh, the disciples w- were caught up in it. Uh, they didn't understand the magnitude of what was taking place. They didn't understand the, the significance uh, of Jesus coming in uh, on a, a donkey. And they didn't understand any of this at the moment. But after Christ's death and resurrection, suddenly all of these things made sense. All of these things came together. And something similar was said back in John uh, 2, verse 22, uh, concerning uh, Jesus uh, makes this, this promise and this prediction that he's able to, uh, to rebuild the temple in, in three days. And the, uh, the Jews that he's speaking to are like, wait, it took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to rebuild it in three days? Uh, well, that what they are going to realize later on, verse 22 says, so when he was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures uh, and the word which Jesus had spoken. He wasn't speaking about uh, the physical temple in Jerusalem. He was speaking about his own body. Uh, And that made sense to them after uh, he was raised from the dead. But both of these uh, verses uh, in John 2.22 and what we see here uh, in John 12 are really a a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to to promise his disciples on uh, the evening of his last supper with them. Uh, John 14:26 Jesus is going to, to say I'm going to I'm going to leave you uh, but the helper the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you uh, and so uh, the the apostles had all of this information uh, all of these things that they had witnessed all of these things that they had heard uh, in the the years and ministry uh, uh, with Jesus uh, but that didn't all make sense to them but after he uh, died was resurrected things made a little bit more sense uh, and then uh, once the spirit came to indwell them suddenly everything made sense uh, and they were able to proclaim all of these truths uh, and write them in scripture and proclaim them to the early church But at this point in time, the disciples didn't know what they didn't know until the Spirit brought things into their remembrance. It's like when you go to the optometrist. I see many of you out there with glasses. At least I think you're wearing glasses. Uh, I need a new prescription. But uh, when you go to the optometrist, they put that thing over your face, and then they they go through all of the different lenses, right? Uh, This one or this one. You're like, can you go back? I, I, I'm confused on which one. Uh, option one, option two. Uh, but it's, it's like the, when, the, when the Spirit comes and gives you illumination and He brings things to remembrance and He gives you understanding, it's that the lenses click and then you see everything clearly. Uh, and that is what took place uh, in the lives of the apostles. Uh, and they had to, to look through the lens of Jesus' resurrection and glory. Uh, and, and again, this is, this is key and foundational because if you reject those things, if you reject the fact that Jesus rose again from the dead, nothing else is going to make sense. You're not going to understand who Jesus is. You're not going to understand the things that he did or the things that he said. Uh, you must understand and behold Jesus through the lens of his resurrection and through the lens of his glory. And if you reject those things, you'll never fully understand Jesus. Uh, and uh, what we, we see here is that he is the king whom everybody misunderstood at the time. Uh, the, the crowds misunderstood. The disciples misunderstood. Things became evident later on. 
and very clear later on, not only to the disciples, but I think a lot of people who had been witnessing uh, and observing these things. Because how many uh, Jews came to faith on the day of Pentecost when, when Peter stood up to preach in the temple? How many people came to faith in Jesus? 3,000. I think there were a lot of people that suddenly that, that lens clicked into place uh, and they beheld Jesus for all that he is. But at the time, he was the king whom everyone misunderstood. There's a fourth discovery to make in verses 17 through 19. Jesus is not the king that the people want. He's the king that the people need. And he's the king whom everyone misunderstood. He's also the king who saves the world. Verses 17 and 18 are going to show us two different crowds. There's a first crowd who was with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead. And, and this crowd who, who had been uh, with him at the tomb of Lazarus that, that saw him summon Lazarus. So Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus obeyed. They saw Jesus perform this miraculous sign of raising a man who'd been dead for four days. They, they witnessed that, and then they were going and they were telling everybody about that, which is the right thing to do, right? If you see somebody raised from the dead after four days, you better go tell some people. And so this crowd, the first crowd, is going and they are testifying. They are bearing witness about the miracle that Jesus performed. But then there is a, is a second crowd in verse 18. For this reason also, the crowd went and met him. And this is speaking of uh, those who are in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish pilgrims who had come into the city uh, for the, the feast, and they had heard what Jesus did from that first crowd. Uh, they, they hear this news, uh, and so they're going out to, to greet Jesus with, with high, high expectations. And this is, explains uh, the, the religious and nationalistic fervor that Jesus is, is greeted with uh, here in this scene. But it also tells us that there is an ongoing witness by this first crowd to everybody who's there in Jerusalem. Now, that first crowd is continually testifying about who Jesus is and what he has done. And all of this leads into the conversation among the Pharisees that we see in verse 19. So we see the two crowds, and then we see the Pharisees in verse 19. The religious leaders, the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so they're, they're there in uh, gathering together, and they're seeing all of this uh, nationalistic uh, excitement. Uh, and, and as the religious leaders, they want political stability. Okay? They don't want war and rebellion against Rome because uh, who's going to be in the most trouble if that happens? The, the leaders. So they want peace with Rome. The people want rebellion against Rome. Uh, and back at the end of chapter 11, the, the Pharisees had come to the conclusion uh, that Jesus needed to die. In order to, to make uh, peace with Rome and so that the Rome wouldn't come in and destroy uh, Israel. So, hey, Jesus is going to need to die. We need to sacrifice him so that we can remain as a nation. And then they also realized that because so many people were, were coming to believe in Jesus because of Lazarus, that Lazarus needed to die also. But uh, the Pharisees here, as they're, they're speaking to one another, they, they chide one another and saying, look, we're not accomplishing anything against Jesus at this point in time. And that last verse, or last statement in verse 19, says, look, 
the world has gone after him. And this is another example of of prophetic words being spoken uh, without really understanding the significance of them. We saw this back in uh, John chapter uh, 11 uh, with uh, Caiaphas, the, the high priest, a member of the Sanhedrin, if you, if you turn over there. Starting in verse 49, it says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now he who did not say this, he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God, who are scattered abroad. And so the Pharisees make this statement that the whole world is going after him. And really, this is a statement of exaggeration because they're not literally saying the entire world, all, every person on the planet is going after Jesus. What, the, what are they saying? They're saying, man, a whole lot of, uh, of Jews are beginning to, to believe and follow Jesus. But they say the whole world is going after him. But again, this is, this is ironic because... Repeatedly throughout John's gospel, uh, he has used that term, the world. Uh, And the way John uses that term is to describe unbelieving humanity. Uh, That term is used to describe all of those who are in rebellion against God. Uh, And and the mission of Jesus as the Messianic King uh, is to come and save the world. The most famous passage uh, in all of scripture what's the most famous verse in the entire bible john three 16. Let's, let's turn there it's over a few pages but let's begin in verse 14 jesus outlines what he has come to do it says and as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life for God so loved the world. And who is that speaking of? All, all of humanity in rebellion against God. God loved rebels. And he sent his son, his only begotten son. And whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world. But that the world might be saved through him. What the the Pharisees are proclaiming in exasperation is actually what is going to take place. And and the statement, behold, look, the whole world is going after him. It sounds a a lot like uh, the proclamation of John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus didn't come to deliver the Jews from the Romans. He didn't come to deliver us from suffering or war or corrupt political leaders. He did not, did not come to make us happy and give us lives of leisure. He came to seek and save. He came to take away the sin of the world. And that is our greatest need. Uh, but if you and I had written our own prescription, what would it have looked like? Right? What are our prayers typically like? Please please make my life as smooth and easy as possible. Right? That's the prescription that we would write for ourselves. 
we would have asked for the wrong medicine, the wrong remedy, and doing so, we would have only done more to speed up our own death. We often think that we have slight ailments, just a couple of things here and there that we can go to Jesus for and he can help us with and then we'll be on our way. When the reality is we have the cancer of sin and only Jesus is able to, to help us with that. And he is our good and humble king who knows what we need most. He is the one who writes the prescription for us. And the prescription is for him to lead a perfect life, for him to die a sacrificial death, for him to rise again from the dead, and for you and I to trust in who he is and what he has done. That that is the prescription. Jesus is the Savior of the world, and he is the only Savior of the world. Uh, There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved the message about jesus the offer of salvation through him goes out to the whole world all people are called to hear it and respond to it and uh, what the the pharisees are exaggerating about is actually what has happened and will continue to happen until the lord returns and we're going to see this actually on display next week you look at John chapter 12, beginning of verse 20. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And what we're going to see is the, the, the Gentiles are coming to know who Jesus is. Uh, the, the gospel is going forth not just to the Jews, but to the entire world. We're going to see this next week, but we also need to put this on display uh, this next week in our own lives. Uh, And each and every week that you and I are called uh, to proclaim with our mouths and demonstrate with our lives uh, the the saving message of the gospel. Uh, We are here to, to live out and proclaim who Jesus is. It's not the king that we always want, but he is the king that we need. And we are called to entrust ourselves to him. Uh, the message of salvation is found in Jesus alone. And that's a very simple message. We are great sinners, but Christ is a great Savior. We've made four profound discoveries here. We've seen the king the people want, the king the people need, the king everyone misunderstood, and the king who saves the world. We've seen Jesus humble himself rather than exalting himself. Rather than than seizing this moment for revolution, he is submitting himself to the perfect plan and purpose of God. And this meek and mild entry into Jerusalem, again, it's a a misnomer. This shouldn't be the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry is Revelation 19. This is the the gentle entry. All of this, this entry on Sunday foreshadows what Jesus is going to do on Friday. When he's, he's going to, to, to humble himself even lower uh, to the point of death, and then even the worst kind of death. And what we see here in the, in the triumphal entry is very interesting, right? 
because we, we see all of these symbols. We see uh, symbols of, of victory in the palm branches, but we also see uh, symbols of coming and pursuing peace with him riding in on the donkey. All of this woven together creates a powerful portrait for us about how Christ comes uh, in victory and triumph uh, through humility. And what we see modeled for us in uh, the triumphal entry and the character of Christ here is what you and I are called to each and every day. This is the pattern for us to follow in the Christian life. Uh, The cross comes before the crown. Humility comes before exaltation. Death to self precedes life in Christ. These are the things that we are uh, called to. May we contemplate these things. May we uh, examine our own lives in light of these truths. And may we scatter this week into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces, so that we can testify just like that crowd did about who Jesus is and what he has done in our own lives. We haven't seen him uh, raise a man from physical death, but he's raised each of us who are believers from spiritual death. Amen. And let us go and proclaim that to a watching world this week.